Saturday School is brought to you by First Republic Bank. The world is changing and your needs are evolving. As your focus turns to what matters most to you and your community, First Republic remains committed to offering personalized financial solutions that fit your needs. From day one, you'll be connected with a dedicated banker who will serve as your primary point of contact throughout your relationship with a bank. They'll be here to listen to you, understand your values, and meet you on your financial journey. Your banker can offer you solutions that support your goals at any stage, from setting up a personal checking account to refinancing household debt to buying a first home. As your needs evolve, you can call or email your banker at any time for the support you need. Because First Republic believes what matters to you matters most. Learn more at firstrepublic.com. That's firstrepublic.com. Member FDIC Equal Housing Lender. I'm Brian Hu. I'm Ada Singh. And welcome to Saturday School. When your friends are watching Saturday morning cartoons, you're being forced to learn Asian American pop culture history. Hi everyone, welcome back to Saturday School. This season, we're looking at Asian American interracial cinema. Today's episode, we're looking at the 2011 documentary The Learning by Ramona Diaz, which follows four women from the Philippines as they travel to Baltimore to teach at a public school there. Yeah, what makes it super interesting is that they didn't just choose to go to the school like they didn't find the school themselves but rather the baltimore public school system went to the philippines basically to outsource teachers because they have a shortage of teachers they're like well we have english speakers in the philippines maybe they'll do it the same way that so much else is outsourced from the philippines whether it's medical professionals or call center workers why not public school teachers The director, Ramona Diaz, is from Baltimore. And the reason that this is an interracial story is because when you get to the school, it's mostly Black students and teachers. Yeah, not just that it's Black students, but also administrators, people who work at the school, tend to also be Black. So when we start the film, they're in the Philippines. They're interviewing, like, what are their ideas of America? And they're all so optimistic. And several of them talk about how they understand America. Their ideas of America come through popular culture. One of the Filipino teachers was saying like, oh, I only know about this from Princess Diaries. <laughs> kind of being like, no, this is, this is not Princess Diaries world. <laughs> Throughout the film, we hear how interested they are in like American music. They sing I Will Survive multiple times. Oh, karaoke. Very good karaoke scenes in this. Like at one point they sing um, New York, New York. And this idea of like, if I can make it there, I can make it anywhere. Which is uh, kind of a, a notion of the American dream, also of immigration, right? Like, if I can make it in America, I can make it anywhere. And that aspiration is, that's what informs their ambitions to come to the United States. And of course, as immediately when they arrive, yeah, like you said, it's it's not the Princess Diaries. Right. What I, I find so interesting and valuable is they don't arrive in Baltimore and say, ew, this is gross, right? Like, they still like are sort of enamored by it. It's still a, a version of a dream to them. And specifically, it's not a picture of whiteness from white American pop culture, which is what travels. 
And that's tied to the entire premise of the film, which the opening titles remind us, which is the entire reason there are teachers in the Philippines who are equipped with the skills, like linguistic skills, in order to teach in the United States is because of imperialism. It's about the fact that in the 19th century, the U.S. was stationed in the Philippines and through occupation, basically, they converted the entire public education system in the Philippines to an American-style public school system where English was the main language. So they had like a whole entire century of teaching this way. So it's not that like these Filipino teachers are just sort of like miraculously and surprisingly equipped to teach in the United States. No, it's because the Filipino education system had been colonized by the United States. And now the U.S. is basically extracting the riches from the colonization that it had committed over a century ago. So we're following four teachers. One is Dorothea. She's the one that we see first and you see her with her students in the Philippines and they all love her. She's so adored. Goodbye, my teachers. Goodbye, my friends. The reason that she's going to America to teach is because of the money. She would make like 25 times the salary as a teacher in Baltimore compared to what she makes in the Philippines. Yeah, 25. I mean, that's that's not like, like three times would already be very... Yeah. <laughs> kind yeah. of like, oh, I have to take that deal, right? But 25 times, which is really an indication of how badly Filipino teachers are paid. Right. This is an impoverished kind of profession, despite the fact that these teachers apparently are revered by their students. Like, you, you can't live off of this. You see that with most of the teachers, and you also see how much they have to give up to go to the U.S., but when you think about, like what they can provide for their families. One could say it's a no-brainer, but it's also complicated. So it would be worth it to you to leave the country where you've lived your whole life, your family, your friends, your support groups, everything that you know in your whole life, and move to a different country. You're ready to do that. Yes, mom, if that is possible. So you have um, Grace, who's leaving behind her baby. Baby, love you. Angel, who is also able to provide for her family. A lot of the family. <laughs> and then you have Rhea, who's kind of interesting. She got married and had kids really young. So this is kind of her first time being really independent as an adult. With the exception of Angel, like they're basically breaking up their family to pursue this dream and then being able to provide for them. These teachers are in the same wave of OFWs, like overseas Filipino workers that we had discussed in previous seasons. I mean, most famously, Filipino nurses and caregivers all around the world, but teachers as well. This film follows them for the course of a year. So you see them get accepted, go through the training process, come for like their first week, all the way until they get to go back home. And then what happens when they go back home? So it's kind of fascinating. It totally is. I find it super moving too, especially because of all the sacrifice you're talking about. But also like what they discover in the United States and how they adapt and how, how her students kind of adapt to them too. And I think for us, it's interesting because in Hollywood, you often see these stories about teachers coming to teach in these inner city schools. And it's usually like a white teacher coming in to teach a bunch of black students like Michelle Pfeiffer or Ryan Gosling. As 
and um it's interesting because like the power dynamics there are very clear but then when you have these filipina teachers from like very poor backgrounds coming to chase this dream there's like automatically a different dynamic yeah so i mean we could compare it with a film like dangerous minds and just so many that you might imagine of the genre of the white teacher coming to sort of like uplift black and brown students and there's always a bit of like my students are going to teach me as much as i'm going to teach them and it's supposed to be this coming together of the races but under the premise of a white savior None of that seems to be at play in quite the same way in the learning. I mean, these teachers do come with very lofty aspirations of having great relationships with their students, of making a difference, but it's never coded racially, um, partly because they're from a different country altogether. And the difficulty isn't necessarily that the students are black, but maybe that this is just America. At the same time, we recognize this as a trope in American cinema, where you have black students who kind of torment their non-black teachers and... Eventually, they all kind of see eye to eye. And in those cases, like so much of that compromise is the students sort of giving up their blackness in some ways and like understanding the value of some kind of white assimilated notion of educational progress. And then also the teacher like learning to be real. <laughs> learning to wear leather jackets and stuff. That's right. Yeah. That's Michelle Pfeiffer, right? That's Michelle Pfeiffer. <laughs> That's so funny. Like that's the one detail that you remember. I know. And Julio. <laughs> and, and often, like, these teachers are not perfect, right? They have their own baggage. Ryan Gosling was not perfect. He's got baggage. <laughs> but, like, working with these, like, black and brown students, they sort of overcome it. These students help whiteness get over themselves. I think with the learning, there is a bit of that in the sense that these black students are there to help these teachers understand America. Yeah. But it's not done in a way to uplift Filipinoness or to make Filipinoness feel better about itself. That's not in this picture at all, which makes it so much more interesting in, in this larger corpus of films about outsider teachers in inner city schools in the United States. Yeah, if anything, they have to adapt to the Americanness, and in this case, Americanness is defined as blackness. Yeah. Like, all right, I got to know, like, what was your reaction to that scene when Angel is trying to explain the beauty of the country through Mickey Mouse <laughs> to these students? She's showing, like, a home video of herself in Disneyland, right? That scene? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then being like, see, I am here because I wanted to pursue my dreams, so I want you guys to also pursue your dreams so you can do everything that you want to do. And it's like kind of moving because you know that this is her dream and she's pursuing it. But yeah, I think from like the students, you're kind of like your dream is where I already am right now. <laughs> and somehow like Donald Duck plays as an allegory to what you're trying to accomplish here. <laughs> so a lot of it is we're just like, oh, no, Angel, don't 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 do that. Also, like Dorothea, I think the way that you see them trying to relate. So I got four children, and I consider you my children in America. I love my children, and I will do love you for 206 days. And these students are just staring at her like, what, who are, what is this? Who are you? <laughs> but also, like, you get the sense that, like, they've probably seen a lot of versions of this. Yeah, <laughs> like, every yeah. year, there's, like, another teacher that, like wants to change their lives. They're also teaching different grade levels and classes. So Dorothea, her students are, I think, probably high school. So it's a little bit trickier, I think. Whereas Angel's students, I think, are younger. And then Rhea's students, I think she's teaching special education. Yeah, like elementary age. People are behaving a lot better. 
Oh, those students straight up tell her like, "Oh, you're my favorite teacher." Yeah, I know. <laughs> Whereas Dorothy's students like call her terrible names. They're just having breakdance battles, and she's sitting at her table, just being like, "I don't know what to do about yeah. this." <laughs> But also, like, they mock her Filipino accent. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if how much of that there was. Like, I imagine there was a lot of that. Yeah. But it is interesting to see how Dorothea reacts and how she does try to figure things out. We see that you know when she's in the Philippines, her students are so obedient. And so, but I think in the beginning when she's in the U.S., she takes disobedience as a lack of respect. And maybe it is, but I think she learns that to gain respect, it doesn't mean you have to gain obedience. Like there's a different kind of respect that might happen between you and your students beyond them just always listening to you, always being quiet. Yeah, she's always like, why is everyone so loud? <laughs> Everything's <laughs> so noisy, so loud. They're like, why are you so mean? And she's just like, I'm just trying to talk louder than you. <laughs> But then the students are kind of like, no, I'm not disrespecting you. I'm just speaking my opinion. Yeah, and I think that Dorothea realizes that that's a way of making a connection. Yeah, yeah. I don't think she likes it necessarily. It's not her preference, but that's the kind of thing that she realizes she signed up for. And I think that's really moving. And I think partly because she's an outsider, she knows that she can't just tell them how to behave. She can't impose her own notions of classroom etiquette or culture. The whole thing was kind of interesting to me because you know I'm not a teacher, and you always hear that the first year is the hardest. As somebody who does teach, I mean, it's a college; it's not the same. Students are here for different reasons, but at the end of Dorothea's first day, like the relief on her face—that is both like a, like the most stressful-looking relief—is totally real. <laughs> like, like I totally understand that. Like there's so much pressure on the first day to make the impression of I'm here to. I'm here to do more than just teach, right? Like I want to inspire you beyond that, but not necessarily getting that energy back from the class, <laughs> and then just feeling like I just want to get through this. And then when you do, you're like, "All right, I think I did a good job, maybe." And then, and then from there on, like every day, you have good days, you have bad days, and it's sort of like, "All right, just, just take this one day at a time." Like, like, like that aspect of teaching is so real. There's a scene where a student asks Dorothea, "Why are you here?" You miss your family? Oh sure, I miss them. Do you cry? Get up, I'm Sometimes. Um, I wouldn't leave my family if I was you. I stay over there. Uh -huh. You like it in the Philippines? Mm -hmm. You like it over here better? It's a very tough question. Um, it's complicated. Yeah. We feel that throughout the movie. One of the ways they do describe being in America is that it's it's so like empty. Mm -hmm. At home, there's probably like a lot of family around. You look outside, there's a lot of people, a lot of cars, a lot of commotion. Whereas like in Baltimore, they're kind of it seems like they're like living in the same complex. And you look outside, and it's like gray and cloudy, like nobody outside. They talked about it almost like. This can lead to depression or something like this doesn't work for them, and so like in the absence of that, what's amazing is the community that they've developed on their own, like amongst all these other Filipino teachers throughout the through the district, yeah, and the kinds of get-togethers they have, the karaoke, the dancing, and also it's worth noting related to that is that these are mostly women, like almost all women who are coming from the Philippines, and they will become the breadwinners to their families, including their husbands back at home. And it's nice. They're always like teaching the kids, like this is where the Philippines is on the map. Yeah. <laughs> There's like a culture day. They're doing this like famous "I am a Filipino" speech, 
which I think in the Filipino context is like weirdly nationalist in uncomfortable ways. But when a black student in, in Baltimore says it, it's kind of, it's really cool. Yeah. And then they're, you know, doing the dances. Yeah. So Filipinoness comes to have a different kind of utility in these public schools too. It's about their internationalization. And it's interesting. Yeah. Like here, the internationalization of a largely black school is coming from the Philippines. Yeah. And to me, like, this is, like, going back to this notion of the white savior that a lot of Hollywood films about. But this entire movie, The Learning, is about the failure of the white imperial project. The U.S. came to the Philippines, made it in its own image, and then left. And then what are they going to do now? Uh, There's poverty there. And somehow, like, a black administration and a Filipino workforce come together to figure it out on their own. That is not a story that we ever hear in the movies. There are no white saviors in this movie because the white institutions are not saving the Philippines or public schools in Baltimore. There's something about class here, too. I mean, it's more complicated because class in a transnational Philippines is a little bit different than class in, say, Baltimore. But it makes me imagine potential routes of friendship and camaraderie and solidarity that is not really explored in the film, but that is right there underneath the surface. Even if this story seems really novel, or like almost like a like who would have thought that this would happen in Baltimore? There's a certain inevitability about it that this is the way that imperialism and globalization has taken us. And it's beautiful to see people from both sides working through it and being there for each other, finding ways to be there for each other. I'm just preparing myself for the noisy class today. They're coming. They're coming. And something about the process, though, that makes them realize that there's something very noble about that kind of sacrifice in order to bring so much income back to the family and hence to the Philippines. But when they come back, like in those final scenes, when you see the teachers back in the Philippines, it's really uncomfortable. They're basically the walking ATMs for their families now. And you wonder if that also is a world that they're a little uncomfortable into. Angel keeps telling them like, yeah, I have money, but I'm not that rich. I'm not the savior. The 20 times as much money here isn't like millions. It's like probably like 60,000. Spread upon like an eight person family. (laughs) They treat them like you've hit the jackpot where it's no, like I did work. I'm out there working. And, And so like the diaspora becomes this, it means a difficult space. It's a space of labor and in some ways exploitation, but it's also a space of opportunity and of selfhood that perhaps they didn't have before. And a community in Baltimore, and also with these students. These teachers made meaningful relationships with with their students. It contrasts with the disappointments that a lot of them have in their own families, including Rhea and her husband. Rhea's husband is revealed to be a drug addict who gets in trouble with the law in the Philippines. And she's out in the United States, like working with special education students, like making really meaningful connections with her students. And part of her, you just sense like, yeah, she wants to help her husband, obviously. She loves him. But she's utterly disappointed in him. I know. There's like that scene at the end when she's just like, when you love somebody, you keep your feelings to yourself. (laughs) Oh, God. This hurts to hear. Like, it's not fair to me to know that you're messing up. So you deal with it. All these teachers, like, they're amazing. And not amazing in this, like, heroic way, but just amazing, like, in a very ordinary kind of way that is told through the ordinariness of this documentary. This documentary doesn't have 
all of these like interviews with sociologists and experts about the education system to talk about the, the amazingness of these teachers. No, it's you're just like following them around. And there's something like really moving that they're just going about their days. And this is what it's like. They have hundreds of Filipino teachers in the public school system in Baltimore. Like We're not just following the only four that did this. Over 600 Filipino teachers spread out in almost 200 Baltimore public schools. This is an entire wave that's going to make an impact on these students culturally. I'm, I'm curious what the effects are. So this film, even though it came out in 2011, was filmed around 2006. So even though we don't know where they are now in 2020, we know that by 2011, all four of them were still teaching and two of them had been able to bring their families over since. But we get to see the very beginnings of all of this and the hopes that they had before they were sure whether it would work out or not. But in thinking about like what direction it's going to go in, I wrote down in my notes a lyric of a karaoke song that Dorotheo sings at the end, where she sings, I've been to paradise, but I've never been to me. And I think that's a really nice way of thinking about, I've gone to the United States. I've seen the other side of the world, this place of dreams. But what happens to me now? What is my fate? And how am I going to find myself in all of this? Yeah, yeah. So Ramona Diaz followed up the learning with her 2013 feature documentary, Don't Stop Believing, Every Man's Journey, which is about Arnold Pineda, who is very similarly, like he's like a Filipino singer that was brought to the United States to fill in a hole, specifically in this case of the lead singer of the band Journey. Highway into the midnight sun. But the film follows a similar trajectory. A Filipino person with talents who's brought to the United States. And how does that affect culture? And, and never from a perspective of like culture clash or fish out of waterness. She's very interested in these serious issues of how does this affect the assumptions we have about institutions like rock music or of public education. We, we need the Philippines. And so, yeah, if you're, if you're interested in sort of like the, the rock and roll version of this, Don't Stop Believing is pretty easy to find. And then if people are interested in other works by Ramona Diaz, she directed the classic documentary Imelda about Imelda Marcos, which is as jaw-dropping today as it was in 2003. A few years ago, she made a film called Motherland, which is this incredible observational documentary completely set in a maternity ward in the Philippines. And then this year, she made a film called A Thousand Cuts, which is one of the most acclaimed documentaries of the year. And it's about... Rappler and Maria Ressa and journalists in the Philippines who dare to confront the uh, Duterte administration. And is a film that's becoming more and more relevant after we premiered at Sundance this year. And A Thousand Cuts is currently in virtual cinemas. So if you want to see more of her work, check out the website for A Thousand Cuts. Yeah, definitely. So the learning is less easy to find. It might be a college library kind of movie. But there are clips available on YouTube and on PBS, both from the movie, also update videos of the teachers about six years after the film was shot. And now it's almost 10 years after that. And we're totally curious about how they're all doing now. But wherever they are, we hope that this life in America was all that they dreamed of. I've been to paradise, but I Saturday School is a proud member of Potluck, a collective of podcasts that feature stories and voices from the Asian American community. It's produced by me and Brian. Our logo is by Grace Talis Lee, 
Our theme song is courtesy of Rimsky Music and Premium Beat. Check out our website at SaturdaySchoolPodcast.com or you can tweet us. I'm at Ada Singh, A-D-A-T-S-E-N-G. Brian's at Who's Brian, H-U-S-B-R-I-A-N. And the podcast Twitter handle is Wake Up Sat School. Next week, your assignment is to watch the 2013 film American Revolutionary, The Evolution of Grace Lee Boggs. But I never Class dismissed. Hi, I'm Marvin. And I'm Rira. We're the host of Books and Boba, a book club and podcast dedicated to books by Asian and Asian American authors. Every month we pick a book by an Asian author to read and discuss on the show. We read a wide variety of genres from contemporary to historical fiction, fantasy to memoirs, and crime thrillers to romance. Some of our past book club picks are Pachinko by Min Jin Lee, Sorcerer to the Crown by Zen Cho, and Devotion of Suspect X by Keigo Higashino. We also go over what's new in the Asian American literary world and chat with some talented Asian authors about their work. So whether you want to start reading for fun again or diversify your TBR list, we got your Asian literature cravings covered. For more info, check out our website at booksandboba.com. You can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. Part of the Potluck Podcast Collective.